A few years ago, I, I had this tent that I had to put up. And we've camped off and on. I put up tents for years. My wife always needs a tent for a prop for something with kids ministry. And, uh, um, but this was a tent someone had given to us. I think it came from my brother-in-law. And he gave me the bag of poles and the stakes and the tent. But I dumped it all out. And there was no instructions how to put up this tent. There were poles that had numbers on it, poles without numbers. There were stakes. There was the tent. And so I tried to put the poles with numbers together. That didn't work. I tried to put the ones without numbers together. That didn't work. I tried to put the numbered one and not numbered one together. That did not work. Um, and after about 30 minutes of frustration with a friend of mine who was there trying to me help put this tent up, um, does anybody know what one of my kids suggested we should do to put this tent up? Any idea? What did they say we should do? Google it, right? Google it. Pull out your phone, Google it. And as you Google it, you magically find someone who has nothing better in life to do than to do step-by-step recorded instructions of how to put up this make and model of this tent and post it on the Internet. Um, You know, you can find anything on the Internet. Within 15 minutes, we had all the numbered and non-numbered together, poles in the right spot, boom, there's the tent. It is up. And I saved it on my phone, so I know how to do it the next time. Um, But there's something about our culture, isn't there, that we want to watch things. And there's also something crazy about our culture that people actually record things, like recording how to sharpen a knife, and someone records how to sharpen a knife. You know, you name it, you can find it on the Internet these days. Because seeing something, observing something, helps it become real for us. And it helps us sometimes when we're stuck to take the next step. If you haven't been here with us this fall, we're in a series entitled Following Jesus. And we've been talking all fall about what does this look like to follow Jesus. Uh, And today we're going to wrap up this series by looking at the story of a man who does this. And my hope and prayer is that as you listen to his story, as you observe his story, it will give greater clarity for you in what following Jesus looks like in your own personal lives. If you haven't been here with us this fall, we've been in this series entitled Follow, and and it's a phrase that Jesus uses over and over again. Follow, follow, follow me. Come follow me. Will you follow me? This is what following me is all about. Jesus said, you don't have to have your life all together to follow me. You don't have to believe what I believe to follow me. As a matter of fact, Jesus went to people that were very different, extraordinarily different than he was. And he was so comfortable with them that he could even invite them to come and follow him. And I've been asking you this question for the last five weeks, are you following Jesus? Are you following Jesus? And as we talked about following Jesus, we recognize that if you follow Jesus, if you commit to following him for a lifetime, at the end of your life and through the journey of your life, you will learn to live and deal with fears that creep into all of our hearts. Because you'll live in the reality that you are loved by God and that you are never alone. I challenge you to add something to your wardrobe Um, forgiveness and patience and humility and kindness and gentleness, things that Jesus invites us and Paul invites us to put on as we follow Jesus. We talked about the cost of following Jesus. Weighing the cost. Is the cost too high? Am I willing to pay the price to follow Jesus? And he offered us a deal. He said, you can take this deal. You can live your life, but you'll eventually lose it. Or you can trade your life for something that you'll enjoy for eternity. And last week we looked at the cost involves releasing what you treasure. There'll be a financial cost in serving others in need. And so this week as we wrap up, we want to look at the story of a man. And if you have your Bibles, if you would turn to Mark chapter 8, Mark chapter 8, 
And we're going to just do a little looking back at what Jesus talks about. If you don't have a Bible, our guys have some. They'll pass them out. Uh, the page numbers are listed that the story is on in Mark 8. Um, you can also follow along on your phone or tablets on our network as well. And before we, we get to the story, I want to just to do a quick review because the Gospel of Mark is the shortest of all the four Gospels. And I think Luke is one of the longest. Matthew's the longest. Luke has most, the most details. Um, but Mark is kind of the snapshots. And sometimes when you just get the highlights, you can figure out some themes in the stories versus kind of getting caught in every single story. So one of the benefits of looking at Mark's gospel is you get some of the important highlights of the life of Jesus. And so I want you to turn to Mark chapter 8. And we looked at this a few weeks ago. In Mark chapter 8, verse 31, Jesus begins to teach that he's going to suffer, be rejected, he's going to be killed, and in three days he's going to rise again. So he's starting to tell his followers the plan is going to change. The plan is going to change. Up to this point in time, he's been feeding thousands. He's been raising people from the dead. He's been walking on water. He's been healing the sick. He's been uh, making the lame walk. He's been opening the eyes. And, and he said, it's going to change. There's a change coming. Peter didn't want anything to do with that. Jesus rebuked him. And then Jesus says this in verse 34. He says, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. Whoever wants to save their life will lose it. Here's the trade. Whoever wants to lose their life for me and for my gospel will save it. Verse 36, what good is it for someone to gain the world yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone exchange, give in exchange for their soul? He's basically laying this opportunity, this deal out to them. And then he goes on in Mark chapter 9, and again he talks about his death again. Look in Mark chapter 9 down in verse, in verse 30. He again says... Um, in verse 31, the Son of Man is going to be delivered. They're going to kill him, and after three days he'll rise again. But it says in the next verse, they didn't understand it, and they were afraid to ask. They were afraid to ask. It's almost like, you know, please, if, if I don't hear it, and I don't think about it, then maybe it's not going to happen. But Jesus told them a second time. All they did was go on to argue about who was most important to Jesus. And then in Mark 10, he tells them a third time. Look in Mark 10. Verse 33 says, We're going up to Jerusalem. The Son of Man will be delivered over the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They'll condemn Him. They'll hand Him over to the Gentiles who will mock Him, spit on Him, flog Him, and kill Him. Three days later, He will rise again. And all the disciples could discuss is, um, by the way, who's going to get the front seat? Hey, can I have the front seat? Can I ride shotgun this time? That's all they can think about. That's all they can talk about and discuss. And Jesus says to them at the end of that in verse 45, He says, For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. I don't think the disciples knew what was going on. I, I think some of them saw the opportunity and like, well, follow Jesus, get free food, watch amazing things happen, better than staying up all night hauling smelly fish. I'll trade that and I'll go with Jesus. Now, some of them made great sacrifices. Matthew, we know, is a wealthy tax collector. He walked away from it all to follow Jesus. But I'm not sure the disciples really knew what was going on. They were just kind of along for the ride is what it almost appears when you read these passages in close proximity. Well, as Jesus as as Mark records all of this, he wraps up with one final story, and I kind of wonder if Mark did this so that the disciples would get one final chance to see what does this following Jesus really look like? What does it look like? What does it really all mean? 
Well, if you're there in Mark 10, look at verse 46. It says, They came to Jericho as Jesus and his disciples, together with a large crowd, were leaving the city. A blind man, Bartimaeus, which means son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside begging. So what do we know in this story? We know that there's a large crowd following Jesus. Big, massive crowd. We know that his disciples are there, probably huddled right around him. There is handlers, you know. They're kind of right there close to him, kind of help him move through the crowds and keep things moving. And we know that as they came up into Jericho, as they were leaving Jericho, and they come making their way towards Jerusalem, um, they passed a beggar sitting on the side of the road. Not uncommon in those days. They were everywhere. His name is given kind of unusual, but it gives him some dignity. This is an important guy, Bartimaeus. We don't know much about Bartimaeus other than the fact that his father was Timaeus. I'm not very creative on the ending of the name there, but you know that's what they did in those days. you know. And, and we know he's sitting by the side of the road, and we find out later that Bartimaeus can't see. He's blind. He's blind. We don't know why he's born blind, but think about this guy's life for a moment. He could very likely be the guy, like the guy in John 9 who was born blind, been blind since birth. He could have had an accident or a disease could have struck him that, that took his sight from him. We don't know why. We just know he's sitting by the side of the road. Um, we know he probably doesn't have a family of his own at that point in time because he couldn't provide for them. He's just trying to get a few pennies, a few shekels, so he can get something to eat or maybe even ask for some food from the passerbys. We know he's not playing an instrument like you might find in a city today, but he's asking for coins or something. If a beggar can't see, how do they know when to ask someone, would, do you have a coin, sir? Do you have something to eat, ma'am? How would they know? If they can't see, how do they know someone's coming? They would do what? They would hear them, right? They would hear their feet shuffle. Sorry, no gravel up here. They would hear their feet shuffle. And when they heard the feet shuffle then they would know someone was coming. And so this was a man that was used to his life for some period of time, maybe a long period of time, maybe his whole life is used to listening because when one sense is non-present, the other senses are heightened. And so as he's listening to what's going on, he hears not just one person, but a whole crowd. He not only hears the feet shuffling, he hears the people, the, the voices rumbling, and he hears it getting louder and louder and louder as they're coming closer and closer. And as someone walks by him, he pulls on the bottom of their cloak and he says, what's going on? Who's coming? What's happening? Nobody, they ignore him. He pulls on someone else's cloak. What's going on? Who's coming? What's happening? Finally, someone turns to him and says, Jesus of Nazareth is coming. Jesus of Nazareth. And as soon as he hears this, he begins to shout, it says in the next verse, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Now, he doesn't say, Jesus of Nazareth, have mercy on me. Why not? Why not? Why did he say, Jesus, son of David, instead of Jesus of Nazareth? You, you would assume that's what he would say, right? Jesus of Nazareth. But he says, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. I think Bartimaeus, who couldn't see, but he listened really, really well. And likely he was a good Jew, and so he went to synagogue on a regular basis. And when he went to synagogue on a regular basis, he would sit and hear them open these scrolls and read from the Old Testament. And the prophet Isaiah would talk about that there was a Messiah who was coming, a deliverer, one like Moses who would come and rescue his people. 
And this deliverer would be from the family and the line of who? David. And this deliverer, when he showed up and rescued the people, he would, he would heal the sick, and he would make the lame walk again, and he would do what? He would open the eyes of the blind. And suddenly, I think, in this man's mind, he knew that the baby that was prophesied to come, this Jesus of Nazareth, somehow he put all the pieces together to realize this is really the guy. This is really the guy. And instead of just saying Jesus of Nazareth, he says, Jesus, son of David. I believe as a confession of his belief that this is the Messiah, the promised one, the one that the Jews had hoped for, had prayed for, had anticipated, he was finally here. And he knew it. And he knew it. He then goes on to say this phrase. He says, have mercy on me. He doesn't say help me. He doesn't say heal me. He doesn't say can you give me a coin or some bread. He says have mercy on me. Have mercy on me. When do you and I ask for mercy? When do we ask for mercy? When you're standing before the judge, right? And you know what the law is and you know what your punishment is. You're like, um, sir, if you would please, if you can find it in your heart, could you have mercy on me, right? You know, when, you, when you're standing before mom and dad and you know you are in trouble, you are in deep doo-doo, you know, and you're like, can, can you please have a little mercy on me, you know, right? You know it's coming down. You know you deserve it. You know justice is coming. You know there's a price to be paid and you're just saying, would someone have mercy on me? And I found myself sitting wondering, why did this guy plead for mercy? Why did he plead for mercy? What in his life would lead him to plead for mercy? You know, it was often believed in the Jewish culture that when something like this happened, when you faced some kind of horrible thing, you did something to deserve it. Like if the story in John 9, if you go back and read that the, the, the religious leaders were asking Jesus about a man who was born blind, they said, who sinned, right? The man or his parents. There always has to be a cause and effect. Something doesn't just happen. There always has to be a cause effect. It's the Jewish way of thinking. And so it made me stop and wonder, what did this guy do that at least in his mind, whether real or imagined, caused him to plead with God for mercy? How did this guy blow it? How did he mess up? How did he do something in his life that he thought was just irreparable? Did he wreck his family? Did he steal from someone? Did he take advantage of a coworker? What did he do that at least in his mind, he concluded there's only one person and only one place I'm going to get mercy? And it's Jesus. It's Jesus. And he cries out. He says, Son of David, have mercy on him. You say, why do you, John, why do you think he did something that he didn't deserve? How? He, he did, look at that in the very next verse. It says, many people rebuked him. Why would you rebuke a beggar asking for help? I mean, that seems kind of heartless, doesn't it? 
you know, you only rebuke someone who did something wrong, right? They do something wrong and you're like, what are you asking for? You don't deserve a second chance. You blew it the first time. You had your chance. Let other people get up. Why would you rebuke someone? Simply because they're asking for help. Makes me wonder if there was something this guy did and the whole town knew about it that he didn't deserve a second chance. He didn't deserve a second chance. They told him to be quiet. Go somewhere else and beg. Pushed him aside. But this guy shouted even more. Even more. Son of David, have mercy on me. Loud enough that Jesus heard him and stopped. He could hear him and he stopped. But then even Jesus' words are a bit confusing. Because if Jesus heard somebody calling out to him for help, if someone's calling out to you and they're saying, help me, what would you normally turn to them and say? What do you need what? Help with, right? What, What do you need? What do you need? That would be the obvious question you would ask someone in need. But that's not what Jesus says. He goes on and he stopped and he says to them, to the people likely around him, call him. Call him. Now, why did Jesus say, call him? Why did he say that? We saw last week in the story of the rich young ruler that there were some people who came to Jesus. There were some people who came wanting to know, what do I have to do to follow you? And Jesus told them, And they said, price is too high. I'm not interested. I'm not interested. How many of you know of someone, or maybe this is your story, where you complain about your job, you complain about your boss, you complain about the hours, you complain about the pay, you complain about the work, but you never go find another job? How many of you, or you know someone, who complains about this ache, who complains about this pain, who complains about this sickness, who complains about this illness, but they never go and see a doctor and get some help. You see, just because someone's crying out for help, just because someone's saying they need help, doesn't mean they're really going to do it and move, are they? Are they? Maybe you've got a girlfriend or you've got a buddy and all they do is talk about their struggles in their marriage and all they do is talk about how they have the, the, the fights and the arguments and conflicts and you say, hey, here's a friend of mine that's really helped me. Are you in... T-? No, 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 we don't have time. We just, we're just too busy. We don't have any time for it. We, we, there's no way we could squeeze it into our schedule. And you're like, they really don't want to change, do they? I wonder if Jesus said, call him to see if he would really come. Is this guy really serious? Does he really want to follow Jesus? Probably one of the biggest struggles for us as pastors is when people come to us with heart-wrenching stories, difficult struggles they're going through. And we sit with them, we listen to their stories, we say, let's pray together, we say, this might be a step for you to take. And they're like, No, I think I'll pass. Thanks for listening. Agonizing. Gut-wrenching. 
And some people that come to me at times and they'll say, well, don't you see what so-and-so is doing? Yeah, I see. Well, aren't they going down a bad path? Yeah, they're going down a bad path. Can't you stop them? And I'm like, I, I can't. I can't. I can't, you know, twist their arm behind their back and say, you can't go. I can't. I can't. Jesus doesn't do that either. Either. He says, behold, I stand at the door and I knock. And if anyone opens the door and comes in, opens the door, I will come what? Into him and be with him and he with me. Jesus never forces himself upon us. But he says, call him. Call him. And let's see what he does. The people were excited. Look at the people's response in the the second half of that verse. And they called to the blind man. They said, cheer up or be encouraged. Hey, he heard your name. And he says, they said, get on your feet. He's calling you. Your name's been picked. Come on down the aisle. And so you wonder, what's the guy going to do? Is he going to come running? Or is he going to say, no, you're just saying that because you're trying to make me feel better, you know? I, I don't think he'd call me. He wouldn't, he wouldn't call me. Why would he call me? I know I call, but I, I don't think he would... Now look at the next, next verse. It says, he threw his cloak aside, he jumped to his feet, and he came to Jesus. And then Jesus said this, what we thought he might say earlier. What do you want me to do? Now, let me ask you this question. Did Jesus know what this guy needed, yes or no? What, yes or no? Yes. Jesus knew what this guy needed, right? But he asked him again, what do you need? Why do you think Jesus asked this guy what he needed? Because when you and I ask someone for help, it shows our heart. It shows our heart. It shows our humility. It shows our dependence on other people. And for some of you, that's really hard. It's really hard. It's really hard for you to do that with your spouse because you're pretty self-reliant. It's really hard to do that with your friends. And the truth is, if you're really honest, it's really hard for you to do that with God. And so God, Jesus wants to see what is the condition of this man's heart. And so what has Jesus observed in this guy so far? He recognized he's the son of David. There's some truth that he's aware of. He recognizes his own neediness and undeservedness of God's mercy and God's grace. And so he pleads with God, Jesus, to have mercy on him. He was persistent. He kept shouting. He didn't let the detractors stop him. He recognizes the dependence because in the next verse, what does he say? Or the second half of that verse, he says, Rabbi, I want to see. I want to see. And Jesus quickly responded to him in verse 52 by saying, go. But then he says this. He says, your faith has healed you. Not go, your sight has been restored. Not go, you can see. Not go, be on your way. But he said, your faith. Your faith. Your ability to put absolute confidence and trust in me. That's what's healed. Your sight. Not my touch. Not something magical, but your faith has healed you.
And then look how Jesus, look how the story closes. Because it says immediately he received his sight. And then what happened? What does it say he did? Followed Jesus. Followed Jesus. You know, a lot of times when we read these stories in the New Testament and we, Jesus says, come follow me, and they follow him, we're like, wow, how did that happen so fast, you know? And, and this story kind of breaks it down for it, and it lets us see almost pain by pain by pain by pain what was happening in this guy's heart. What was being stirred up? What recognition was taking place? What acknowledgement did he say of his need for Jesus and his willingness to cry out for mercy? And his willingness to say, I need this from you. I can't do this on my own. And his faith resulted in the transformation and him being healed. Some of you are thinking, yeah, if Jesus took away a paralyzing disease I had, I'd be the first one to sign up to follow Jesus. But don't overlook the rest of the story. Don't overlook what was happening in this guy's heart before he followed Jesus. Jesus. And the question for you this morning is the same question we've been asking all along, and that's, are you following Jesus? Are you following Jesus? Notice I haven't asked you in the last five weeks, did you pray a prayer at some point? I haven't asked you that. I haven't asked you, are you you attending church regularly? Are you serving and contributing here at CCC in some way? I haven't asked you any of those questions. I simply asked you this question, are you following Jesus? Because following Jesus is about an attitude of my heart. It's an attitude of humility. It's an attitude of dependence and an attitude of response that says, God, I recognize that I'm a sinner, that I need you. I need your help. I need your help every single day, and I can't do this on my own. Will you help me? That's what a follower of Jesus says when they begin their journey with him, when they begin to follow him, and that's the way they live every single day. Maybe you say, John, I've been following Jesus, and I I know who He is, and I know um, what following Him is about, and I've been trying to do that with my life, but maybe during this series, God's kind of tapped on one of those doors in your heart and said, this is one area, you're kind of, you check me out of this part of your life. Yeah, you, you follow me sometimes, but when it comes to this relationship that you really, really want, that's really important to me, you've kind of closed the God door on that relationship said, I'm just going to do this one on my own, God. It's what I really want, and I'm going to do it regardless. And maybe there's a part of your job that's just tough and hard, and, and you have to fight to just navigate this part of your world. And most people that work with you would have no idea you're a follower of Jesus. Because you've closed the door and kept him out of there. And maybe this morning, part of this journey for you, saying, God, I've chosen to follow you, but I want to follow you with everything I have. We sing a song here that says, where you go, I'll go. Where you stay, I'll stay. I will follow you. And I hope this morning as you think about what we saw about Jesus is that the first thing is that Jesus is going to hear you through all the noise. I mean, Jesus heard this guy. You might be wondering, I don't know if God's going to hear me through everything that's going on. 
And that Jesus is going to invite you to follow in. He's going to invite you to give up more and more of your heart. He's going to invite you to offer more to Him. But He's not going to force you to do that. And lastly, that Jesus is going to rescue you. That's what He did this man. The word healed could be saved or delivered or rescued. That's what Jesus did to this man. He gave him a new outlook on life that he had never had before. And that's what he wants to do in your life. I want to invite you to bow your heads. and As you do, I just want you to take a moment and bring your heart before God. And maybe this morning you can honestly say, I've been here, I've been coming, I've been listening, um, but I'm really not... I wouldn't describe myself as a follower of Jesus. And so maybe today is the day that begins for you. When you say, Lord Jesus, I'm tired of doing life on my own. I'm tired of trying to make life work. I, I want to follow you. Maybe there's a part of your heart that you've struggled to give up. Say, Jesus, I want to follow you with everything. And I know there's going to be a cost, and I know there's going to be a sacrifice, and I know it's not going to be easy, and the road's going to be challenging, but I want to give you every part of my heart and every part of my life. God, help us to do this because we can't do this on our own.